Yahweh, the God of the Bible, did and does and continues to sit on the throne. None of this happens outside of His ultimate and divine will. This took place in our passage this morning, and, and I offer this as a, as a reason behind it. Um, if you need convincing, and, and we'll talk about it all throughout our sermon this morning, listen to some of the names of the kingdoms that are mentioned, and then try to find them today to find out if they are ultimate and if they are truly in power and their authority is everlasting. And when you can't find them, uh, then look up Yahweh or the God of the Bible and see how far His name has gone. That should encourage you. Now, with that being said, I do invite you to look with me as we read this morning from the book of Genesis. This morning, Genesis chapter 14, and I do want to read the whole chapter. Uh, so I invite you now to turn with me, either in your Bibles or to the outline that is in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketaleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboyim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketoleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketoleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnim, in the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shav Kirathium, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned their back and came to Im Misfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all of the countries of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazanon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Ketaleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Emerfel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard this, that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born of his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. 
And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. I invite you now to go with me to the Lord in prayer. By His Spirit, would we ask that He bless this time and bless the hearing of His Word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, You are the God of Your people. You work on individual hearts. Lord, You work in the live, lives of Your church, of Your churches. You work on your church, the true church. Lord, you work on a global scale. Father, I pray that we are challenged and we are encouraged this morning to consider the the reaches of your sovereignty. And we consider uh, that your plan will be fulfilled for everything is in your hands. Lord, we thank you for this time and by the power of your spirit, I ask you illumine our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that now that we've heard your word, we might receive it. And by receiving it, we might live changed lives. I pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, during my time in seminary, I had the opportunity one summer into the fall, I'm along with my roommate, to um, do some gardening. And uh, they had a deal at RTS that you could uh, buy a section of this big garden. They, they plowed this great big field, and you could buy rows or half rows, and you could garden, but it was up to you. They, they would till it, and then everything else was, was on you. And my, my roommate um, was very zealous. He purchased uh, three 20-yard rows um, in this garden and decided we were going to plant enough vegetables to last a year. He was, he was very frugal. I was one who grew up farming, at least in a little scale, and was like, I don't know if we can do that. Oh, we can do it. We've got time. And so we did. And then we planted tomatoes, cucumbers. Um, we planted um, watermelons. We planted uh, various kinds of beans, which you wouldn't normally do, but we did. And it, basically everything you could find on an end cap at Walmart, um, all those seeds, we grabbed a, two of everything because uh, we had the space. We had all this land. And we planted it, and it, uh, we worked really hard for a week, and then it rained for two weeks, and then we had to go to a trip, and then um, we got back, and uh, things had grown, and we tried to beat it back down, and um, I'll, I'll, long story short, uh, we bought our vegetables that fall. And I chuckle every time I think about that story, because we all like to think about how sovereign we are over our little spheres, don't we? We like to think of the control we think we have. We, we like to think about how much power we have in any given situation, um, which, you know, the Lord has blessed us. When do you know or when do you plan for the power to go out? Look at there, handed to us by God this morning. When do you plan for two weeks of rain? 
When do you plan for this and that, for that flat tire, for that accident, for that thing not to be available? You know, we, we have this idea and we have this mindset of we have control over our lives and over the, our own affairs until God quickly and, and sometimes comedically says, no, you don't. And that can be discouraging. It, it certainly can, can cause us worry or anxiety. But while that is the case, we need to contrast that versus the fact that God has never dropped anything. That God has never missed taking care of His garden. God has never missed taking care of His people. God has never missed taking care of His animals. His animals, His people, their lives, the world that sustains them. God works, His sovereignty works, not only at the micro, but also the macro. God orchestrates and ordains what comes to pass in our own hearts and at a global level. And we see that. We see that laid out here in our passages. We we hear of mighty kings representing mighty kingdoms, and we hear of these wars. Land-shaping, nation-shaping wars taking place. And yet, right in the middle of it, right in the heart of it, we see how God provides for this one family and how God reveals His plan and His ultimate goal through this family amidst this global or national conflict. And while this is a very historical text, and and we will do a lot of um, digging in history this morning, um, if nothing else, if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to be encouraged. Maybe you think that we are in a rough time as a nation. Maybe you think globally there's too much going on. There's too much conflict or potential conflict. War is an ever-present reality that, that we're living on the brink of utter destruction and chaos. And I can't tell you if that's true or not. Um, if you want a good lesson in that, go back to our lessons in First and Second Peter and Jude uh, to find out that actually, yes, you're right, but... What I can tell you this morning, that the same God that took care of Abram and Lot, that watched over them in this, interna- or in this national conflict, is the same God that looks over you and me today. And He is still in control. He still has everything in His hands. And not a thing will take place without His permission or without His movement upon it. And so that's what we're going to see. And we're going to see that in three phases in our text this morning. We're going to see it, um, the fate of two different groups. Uh, First, we're going to see the fate of kings and nations, and then we're going to see the fate of God's people. And then finally, we're going to come to the conclusion, or hopefully we come to the conclusion, because of that, our only response should be worship and praise of our God. And we'll see that throughout our passage, and I invite you to follow along with me. We begin with the fate of kings and nations. And upon reading this section, I'm sure several thoughts come to your mind. And let's just get the first one out of the way, the least of which I'm not sure if Aaron pronounced all those right, but I don't want to challenge him because I don't want to try it. Now that you get that thought out of your head, let's think a little bit about what is going on. And let's zoom out even before we talk about these kings and these nations. This feels like a bit of an odd interjection in the life of Abram, doesn't it? 
We've really been focused for the last two chapters on this one man and his family and the circumstances around him, his successes, his great acts of faith, his failures, his, his times in which he didn't show much faith. But then it, it, it kind of vacillates between faith and not faith, between trusting God and not trusting God. And we've really been zoomed in on his life. And then we get this, this scene in verses 1 through 12 of warring kings. And I, I will tell you that um, one of the biggest purposes of chapter or verses 1 through 12 is to set the stage for 13 to 16. 13 to 16 really is the heart of this passage, but we get 1 to 12 to show us what God is about to do, and so we need to talk about it for a moment. A rebellion has arisen. Um, a rebellion that has arisen, so kings had to deal with it, and the kings dealt with it the way kings know best, by war. To put it differently, trusting in their own might, they sought to crush opposition by their own strength. It shows a, a great trust in self and a great trust in one's own ability. And we get the sense, um, while we can't say with absolute certainty, we, we get the sense at least the first two kings here mentioned, their names are derivative of the Hebrew word evil. And so the first two kings mentioned here, their name, you can look at it, and you can look at the Hebrew word evil, and they're very similar. These are not good guys. The, the, these are not kings that are obeying God. This is not Joshua. This is not Joshua in a holy war um, waged on um, and by God's command. These are kings that want something, and they're out to get it, and they're going to get it the way they know best, by taking it. And we're going to contrast this in a bit, uh, uh, you know, that method against trusting in God and trusting in God by confidence. But we can learn a little more about the situation. This is where a little bit of archaeology comes into play. I was reading a historian uh, who comments on this about why, what was so interesting that nine armies go to battle. And, and here's what um, this historian said. We know from archaeological and historical and linguistic sources um, it was not uncommon for kings to come into this area because it was very rich in copper, bitumen, and manganese. So it was a target for invasions. The land itself was rich. It had things in it. It grew, possessed things that other people wanted. And so people warred over it. Um, the, the historian goes on to say, the kings who lived in this valley were petty states. They were client states of the greater king who had conquered all of them. But after 13 years, they had decided this is it. And so you've got minor kingdoms, minor kings, minor um, kings wouldn't be the right word, but, but basically um, holders of land for their king who had to live under his control, who had to tithe to him, who had to give um, to him and um, do what he said. And for 12 years, they lived under um, Ketaleomer's rule. And then all of a sudden, they said, I am done. I don't want to give to him. He's not working the land. He's not taking care of me. His taxes are too high. We can make up a story. It's not hard to make up, whatever it is. Or I don't like him. And so they said, we're going to take him out. And so that's what we see, um, in, in particularly in this first section, is this, this war, this battle, this struggle for this land and these possessions and these people. 
and army after army, and this king from this place, and this king from this place. They all converge here. And you may find yourself asking, well, Aaron, what, what is the spiritual significance of this? Because this is, this, is, this, is, I mean, this is kind of difficult to read. This is a king did this, and a king went here, and a king from here did this. What is the, what is the, the, the divine intent? And I would, I would tell you that, that there are two pieces of, of, of significance if we catch in, nothing else. One, two of the kingdoms or two of the, the, the areas in this struggle are the, the uh, areas of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are significant because if you were with us last week with the separation of Abram and Lot, where did Lot go? Where did Lot say, as he looked out into the land and he said, I, Abram said, pick what you want, I'll go the opposite way. He said, I want that. That looks the best. The best land, the best resources, the best for farming, uh, the best for raising livestock. Yes, it's near Sodom and Gomorrah, and yes, they're known as wicked people to the Lord, but I can deal with that. Well, because that land was so rich, Lot became the spoils of war. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. And so one reason that this battle, this conflict is important to us, is significant to us, because it directly affects Abram. Affects Abram through Lot. The, the, the other reason that this is significant, that this passage is significant, is because it displays on a global scale, on a major level, that our God is sovereign. And we know it through Lot. Namely, he lived. It was very common in war for people to die. It was very common in war when a king took over, especially squashed a rebellion, for them to go in and kill the men from that city or nation so that they couldn't uprise again, to make an example. Lot living in the area, even being a sojourner, he wouldn't have been excluded from this. He does not die. Also, um, it's insignificant because all of this, all of this gives us a backdrop. All of this sets up the stage. All of this this mighty force, this mighty show of power, this, this mighty act and actions by these various kingdoms paints a picture of might and power and control. In some ways, these wars, you'd almost call them inconsequential, but that wouldn't be appropriate, took place merely for the fact that Lot needed to be captured so that Abram's faith could grow. And really, when we, we boil it down, we read the text, and we read it in its context in the entirety of the chapter, we see that these kings went to war so that Lot would be captured so that Abram's faith would grow. And you may find yourself going, that's a pretty bizarre reason to, for kings to go to war. You might say that's merely coincidental, not intentional. But as we continue in our text, we, we, we find that we can't come to that conclusion. We, we can't leave it there. Because nations are under control of God, even more so are God's people under His control and His sovereign arm. And we see that, like I said, in the heart of our passage in 13 to 16. And so 1 through 12 gives us the big scenario, God working on a national level. And now we zoom back in to our main figure in, this cha in these chapters, to Abram. 
And here we get a, a great sense of the Lord's provision. Verse 13 is significant. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. One person escaped. That's uncommon. That is uncommon that one person escaped the battle. It's even more uncommon that the one person that escaped the battle just so happened to know the last location of Abram the Hebrew. It is also just so happens that this person escaped, which is unusual. This person knew where Abram was located, which was unusual. He was an ally of Abram, which is unusual. And then it's not so consequential that this man escaped, that this man knew where Abram was, that this man was an ally of Abram, but the news that he brings to him is particular to his nephew. Don't you see how we we keep following the trail of consequences and you run out of excuses after a while? Almost if it had to have been planned that way from the start. God sent a particular person to not be killed. A particular person who knew Abram, who was a friend of him, who knew his nephew and cared about him, and he brings this news. Again, I, I cannot accept that all of this is mere consequence. And then we get to a fascinating, fascinating um, section. We see something in Abram that we've not seen before. We, we see an action taken by Abram that he's not done. Boldness. I mean, this is the Abram that gave away his wife out of fear that he might face consequences. This is so bizarre, and and that may not be the appropriate word, but this is so out of character for Abram. Some scholars even question, is this an accurate historical account? Um, Particularly liberal scholars, they have a field day with this because they're like, Abram doesn't act this way anywhere else. Why would he act that way here? But as we read this account, I I, want to make a a few points why Abram acted this way precisely because of his God. And and I can show you that through a few things. One, Abram here is called Abram the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew, the first time anyone's given this name. And this is a particular name. This is a name of a group of people, the Hebrews. Abram is Abram of the Hebrews. Now, What did God promise Abram? Well, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Or chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, All the land I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as dust of the earth so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. God promised Abram that he would be the father of a great nation, that he would possess a land and a particular people, that his name would be great because God's name is great. And so Abram here is called what? Abram the Hebrew. We're getting the start of that taking place. This is an Abram of this people, of the Hebrews. And so they're acknowledging him as a, as a clan leader of people a clan leader of people that would actually possess the land that these nations are warring over. Now, another reason I believe that this had to take place, and this is an accurate account. 
when shown the promised land, we look back and we look at chapter 12 and we look at chapter 13, God showed Abram the promised land. It was full of people, the Canaanites. They were ruthless. Um, they were war-hungry. Uh, they didn't trust in God. We're seeing the consequences of that here as people go to war. But when God showed Abram that, he never said, now, you may possess this if we can get rid of these people. Or I think I will give it to you, but I've got this little problem. No, God always says, this will be yours. You and your descendants will own this land. You will possess it. Never ceasing to um, speak with boldness and confidence, despite the, the, the Canaanites and all that were in the land. Now, how do you convince someone that God could rid the land of mighty, warring people? Well, maybe you capture someone's nephew and tell, God go, or tell the man, go get him. Maybe you do that to show him that his people, because of the God that he serves, is greater than other warring nations. Think about this. Verses 1 through 12 reads like this, this great big game of risk where this nation jumps into this land and this nation attacks this group and this nation attacks this group and this one attacks this group. And then you get to 13 and 16. Abram becomes angry because they have captured Lot and he says, hey, men of my house, let's go. 318 heed the call. And then what do they do? They go and rout the nations. The nations that just cause this major conflict in 1 through 12. They go and chase them out of their own land. They send them away. They actually chase them out of the borders of their own territory through this bold night raid. And not only do they chase them out of their own territory, but Abram comes back with everything. He brought back all of the possessions and brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and all of the women and all of the people. That's how you demonstrate to someone that your God is sovereign and that your God has no trouble with Canaanites or Jebusites or whatever Isites that could be in the land. You show him, much like the Battle of Jericho, it doesn't matter about numbers. It doesn't matter about power. It doesn't matter about might. It doesn't matter about what it looks like. I don't even have to use weapons. I am God and I do what I want. Think about what that did for Abram's faith. Think about what that did for his trust in God. This is so significant. This will become one of the major evangelistic tools in the Old Testament. What were you to do but to trust in the God of the Jews, to trust in Israel and its God, the God who protected his people, the God who helped them conquer nations and, and fought battles with greater, greater odds against them. You were to rest upon the, that God, and that was what the Jews were supposed to do, is to proclaim Yahweh to these other nations. They were to share the good news to them because their God has been victorious again and again and again. We see right now the precursors of the gospel being on display. And why, why can I say that? I can say that because 318 men sure shouldn't have beaten armies that just conquered a region. 318 men sure shouldn't have gotten back all of the possessions and all of the women and all of the family members that were taken. It shouldn't happen. It should not take place. 
But trust in God, trust in Yahweh, brings rescue, brings salvation, and brings blessing. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like you are dead in your sins and trespasses, completely wretched people apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ? And if you but trust in Him by faith, you will be saved, you will be His people, and you will be blessed. See what's happening here? The gospel is being presented. It's being presented to Abram. It's being presented to Lot. And it's being presented to these foreign nations. And that's the same God who is in action today. That is the same God who sits on the throne. That is the same God that we worship. The, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. Abram's God is our God. And so while, again, I, I say it's easy to get upset and worried and confused and angry about what's going on in the world and what's going on with nations and, and wars and rumors of wars, all we've got to do is go to the biblical account. I mean, come on. God took down a mighty fortress with trumpets and clay pots. No, not one sword. In fact, they were silent. They, they, they were silent for most of their march. I'm not worried about what our God can do today. But what I am worried about, I do believe the nations are under God's control. I do believe the hearts of people are under God's control. But what I'm concerned about is how we respond to it. And hearing this news and knowing that this is true nationally and in our own hearts, how do we respond? We must respond in worship. We must respond with our hearts and our attitudes exclusively belonging to the Lord. And that's what we see happens here with Abram. Again, I bring up that this is so um, out of place in, in, in some ways, but in yet I do believe it's exactly where it needs to be because the Lord has a plan, that people are, are kind of baffled by what takes place, and in particularly for how it ends. It ends all of this battle, all of this conflict, all of this war, all of this with two kings. Two kings coming to Abram. Now, Note that by coming to Abram, they're acknowledging him as the leader of those people. Starting even now to fulfill that promise God made, you will be the leader of many, a great nation, a great people. Two kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom and then the king of Salem. And the king of Sodom, if you note in verses 1 through 12, is one of the kings defeated a defeated king, one that lost the battle, that had their possessions taken, that, that is a loser in this conflict. We also know that the king of Sodom is a king of a wicked nation. If you go back to 1313, we're told that they are wicked people who do not obey the Lord. And so on one side, we've got this one king coming up to meet Abram, and then on the other side... Way out from left field, we've got King Melchizedek. And there's a lot of mystery around this name. There is a lot of mystery around this figure, um, this king. If you translate his name, it literally translates king of righteousness. We're also told he's a priest, a priest of the Most High God. The first time that anyone's, um, that, that title is attributed to anyone. 
And this tells us, if, if we understand nothing else from that, that Melchizedek knows the God of Abram. He knows Yahweh. And more than that, he worships him. And more than that, he worships him according to how God is prescribed. He's a priest, one who worships Yahweh on behalf of the people. He is a vessel for worship, and we can talk about that in, in, in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But both of these kings, so you've got the loser of Sodom, and you've got Melchizedek. They come and they, they, they meet with Abram, and they both want something different. The, the king of Sodom says, okay, here, here's what we're going to do. You give me back everything they took of mine, and then you can have everything else. And you win, and I win, and we're all happy about it. The king of Sodom, and, and it's, it's insinuated in here, but it is heavily implied that the king of Sodom wants Abram to go around and go, hey guys, guess what? This king of Sodom has made me wealthy. He has made me rich. I have what I have because of him. Which is interesting. He was one of the losers in the battle. He has nothing. <laughs> it was all taken. It, don't, it does not belong to him anymore. But he wants it back, and he wants Abram to get the credit, and he wants to be able to attach their names together. He wants to be able to say, you know, see that Abram fella? He and I, we're close. And what I have is his, and what he has is mine. But Abram won't have it. Abram tells him, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abraham or Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the men have eaten, the share of the men who went with me, and Aner, Eskals, and Mamre's share. You're not my God. You did not give me this victory. You did not give me these possessions. I am not who I am because of you, is effectively what Abram is saying here. And I will not let you or anyone else think that. I won't take anything, even a strap of leather. And so this king is kind of squashed down, and then we get this other king, and this king's lifted up. Melchizedek comes, and upon meeting Abram, Melchizedek blesses him and praises the God of Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And that's God being the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Just like Abram, he too trusts in Yahweh. And while the king of Sodom is saying, look how great you are, Melchizedek is saying, look how great our God is. Note the difference. One is wanting to lift himself up and Abram up, and the other one is saying, our God gave us this victory. Our God accomplished this, not us. It doesn't belong to us. It's not our victory. It's not our possessions. It's not our people. It's his. And we praise him. And this overwhelms Abram to the point that he offers a tithe to Melchizedek. He gives him a tenth. He, he gives him a tithe of what he has earned. And now I, I, I just tell you here, because our time is short, um, again, there's a lot of mystery around Melchizedek. Some people think that this is a theophany, that this is pre-incarnate Jesus, that Jesus before the incarnation, that, that he is Melchizedek because we see Abram giving the offering to him. I do not think that's the case. I think that this is a king who is worshiping God. I think that because if you go to Hebrews, if you go to the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is called a type of Christ. He is called one who is like Christ. 
And Melchizedek stood as an example, as a representative. He showed us and he showed Abram what it is like to follow Christ. What it is like to serve God faithfully. And there's, there's all throughout the scriptures, this Melchizedek name comes back up. David sits on his throne. Jesus is the last priest of this order. You've got this figure, you've got this one in the midst of warring nations, of wicked people, of, of desperate battles. You've got this one who stands clean in all of it. And to him, Abram offers tribute. But it's not to Melchizedek, it's to the God of Melchizedek. And so while there's much more that could be said about him, I just want to conclude this morning by saying we don't need types and shadows any longer. The one that Melchizedek represented, represented has come, Jesus. Melchizedek was to prepare us for Jesus. We know Jesus. Abram, the great father of nations, the one who his descendants would be a blessing and through them would bless the nations, that one has come, Jesus. Jesus is the blessing. Jesus is the one who has all possessions. What is said repeatedly here of God? God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. It's all His. Your descendants will own all this land, will possess it, and they will be a blessing. We are the fulfillment of that. Why? Because we trust in God, and our truth is that you need Him too. We proclaim that what you need most in this life is Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His sacrifice for you. And because you are hearing that from a child of God, now I am a part of your blessing. That blessing that Abram was promised. Through your descendants, they will be a blessing to the nations. You have heard it this day. You have seen it take place. And may you take great comfort in knowing that God works on a global scale, on a national scale. He works locally. He works through this church. Most importantly, He's working in and on yours and my heart today and now. And because of that, we can praise Him, we can take comfort, and we can have hope. And so in concluding, we just echo the words of King Melchizedek. Blessed be the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the God Most High who delivers your enemies into your hands. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, our greatest enemy is sin and death, and they have been delivered into the hands of Christ. Our greatest enemy is ourself and our own rebellion against you that has been defeated in and through Christ. Lord, we have been separated from you by our rebellion that has been bridged by Christ. Lord, you are working a master plan on a master scale. Your plan is sovereign and is good. And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get disheartened when things don't go our way, when we don't like the outcome of a certain situation. But, oh, Lord, would you just give us encouragement and hope and help us to see that all of this works out for your glory and for our good, for those who trust in you by faith. And if we don't trust in you, if there's those here who do not yet trust in you, God, what they hear of this passage, when they read of these nations, of these kings, and, and see what came of them, when they realize that trusting in themselves will only get them so far, but every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess on the day of judgment that Jesus Christ is Lord, and all will give an account of their lives, and only those who profess that they are saved by the shed blood of Christ, 
shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we thank you for your people. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.